Brian is somebody who really continues to push us, to drive us, to inspire us, to challenge us to evolve. He's somebody who personally has <coughs> really influenced my career, has been very generous, very kind, and he's somebody who's got some tremendous insights to share with you this morning. So what I want to do is just go through a few questions I put together, some of them with your input, and then at the end we'll open it up for some more questions, you know, stuff with the time that we have. Um, but what I want to do first of all, Brian, is ask you a little about you. We know where you're at, we know your career, but really, what brought you there, what inspired you? You started off in the tech industry, and moved from there to marketing, and kind of with that tech background, you're moving to marketing with, with a little different perspective, so I wonder if you could share some insights on kind of what brought you to where you are today. Sure, how, how long do we have? Because that's a, that's, that's a, that's a good one. <laughs> Uh, I started in, in database development, actually, uh, going way back. I won't say how long ago, but it was a long time ago. And it just so happened to be that one of my first real gigs was in a marketing agency building databases for them. <clears throat> and this is how long ago it was. It was the shift from analog paper binders of maintaining contacts to moving to digital. And I, the whole time, would listen to, it was both public relations and advertising, I would listen to the creative directors uh, come up with concepts for how to launch new types of, of enterprise-level technologies. And then I'd listen to the public relations team pitch uh, editors and analysts about uh, consumer, you know, emerging consumer electronics. And I, 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 I kind of got fed up one day, and I walked into the president's office, and I said, you know what, as a technologist, the way that your team is trying to talk to me or talk to people like me is, is, is just ridiculous. It's like they've never touched these products in their life. <coughs> and so I said, I would love a shot at trying to help you guys market some of these products uh, because I actually feel that if you could bring a sense of um, <clears throat> empathy, understanding, and there's just real world like solutions and benefits, I, I bet you people are going to get this a lot better. Uh, and that was sort of the turn to the dark side, I, I, so I, I guess you could say. And over the years, you know, without any classical marketing training or background, uh, it was interesting to bring new approaches uh, to, to all of this. And somewhere there in the mid-90s, um, I was working with certain technology products where advertising and public relations just wasn't working. And by working, I mean creating pull, creating demand, creating sell. Uh, you know, ton of co conversations, ton of coverage, ton of like great media impressions, but nothing that was really moving the needle. And at the end of the day, as you guys know, that question about ROI always comes up. So I decided to experiment with um, community engagement. I had found that there were literally a surplus of, of people, potential targets and customers and prospects, all in, in good old-fashioned social networks like message boards and discussion groups having conversations about this stuff. And I realized that that was, that was it. That's where I needed to be. However, I didn't have any type of capability in order to be successful there. I had uh, <laughs> advertisements. I had uh, press releases. I had spokespeople. Uh, and it just, it just wasn't going to necessarily work for me to start spamming those communities. So I decided to become an expert and spent my time and trained my team uh, to spend their time within those communities answering questions, providing resources, giving links. And over time, we were able to see all of that interaction having a direct impact on sales and lead generation. And that was it for me. That was when I believed, this is back in 96, 97, 
uh, when I started talking about the original concepts of what was then PR 2.0, um, that this was the future of, of marketing and direct-to-consumer engagement or direct-to-customer engagement if it was B2B <clears throat> really was the way to go and it changed everything. So much so that in 1999 I started a, uh, an agency uh, d dedicated to direct-to-customer engagement uh, through digital communities, uh, influencer relations, uh, and this is before there were blogs, and it turned out to be really wonderful. I ran that company up until about three, three years ago, three or four years ago, uh, when I also started to become an analyst and author. Well, that maybe, yeah, four years ago. So there you go, that's a long story. And in that, what was it that really drew you into the social space? It was, um, you were one of obviously the very early adopters, and in 2007, I believe it was, you published the, the Social Media Manifesto. What was it that really drew you into that and, and made you see something different? Well, you know, the first decade of running that company, it was it's literally a blur. It was, uh, it was a hustle every day, trying to find new ways to expand. You've got to remember, too, at the time, the Internet is exploding. Uh, it's getting bigger, it's connecting more people, it's, it's, you, we moved from you know, plugging in phone lines to your computer to getting broadband, I mean things were just really, really amazing and in that time I started to see that the more mainstream uh, consumers that were starting to get online were also spending more time in these communities and there were a series of folks that were having similar observations, you know, one being Chris Hewer, uh, who is the, you know, Chris and Christy were the, the folks that I worked with at the beginning days of, of Social Media Club because we would get together with these meetups with like four people and we would talk about the future of media engagement, marketing, communications and uh, that's when we decided that you know, we felt social media was going to be the, the, the big thing and believe it, ba believe it or not, back then we were having debates with people that are still around today like Doc Searles and and Chris Shipley, and well, Chris Shipley was on on the side of social media, and Robert Scoble, and and everybody was sort of debating about what the future of this would be. And Doc Searles, who had accurately predicted all of this happening um, in in his 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 early books, uh, had wanted to call it the live web, and. I thought that was an interesting uh, idea because that's kind of where we're going now. And social media is essentially a live web. It's it's you and me. It's always on, and it's bigger than social networks. And uh, it's it's interesting just how we all sort of stuck together, came together, and still to this day uh, work together on trying to push this forward to be much more than just another marketing tool, another channel to push your messages, another way to broadcast to people, but a way to actually learn how to change how you think and how you approach people. And with this ongoing evolution, something that was interesting to me was sitting here as a social media cloud in a room full of social media professionals. Uh, back in the summer, you were, you were asked, you know, what would be your number one piece of advice to, to community managers, to social media managers, what would you tell them? And your answer was, stop talking about social media. <laughs> and recently, you pushed that further with, with encouraging us to move the shift away from social to digital engagement, focus more on digital engagement. Could you maybe touch a little more on that, talk about that, why it's so critical to understand that shift, and is there a company that you would really highlight as one that's created that true digital experience? Yeah, well, this is, this is really important, because now what you're talking about is, is the, the future, and what I'm trying to do, and this is what, I mean, took, look, Conversations about social media started before there were social media, right? We're going back to the mid-90s, and it, I didn't write the social media manifesto until 2007. 
the reason why I wrote it then was because I was noticing that as social media was getting traction, it was already on a dangerous path. Social media was being built within agencies, within companies that got it in its own silo, and it was disconnected from the rest of the organization. And, and my point back in the day was social media is bigger than marketing. Social media is about a, a, a philosophy. It's about how a company approaches a market. Like I said, when I initially started to engage in those, those discussion boards and forums, I had to change how I talk. I had to change how I, I had to learn. Uh, I had to become the expert. Uh, I had to change the types of things I would create in order to help people. Uh, and so it required a complete shift, and it required an entirely different type of agency to support that work, a whole different model, monetization model, how you sell it. And so once social media started to get traction, I realized that there was already things that were happening that were going to work against it eventually. Um, so I spent uh, the next, you know, the, from then until now, really trying to push people outside of those zones, outside of those boundaries to say, look, Look at how many brands are using Facebook today, just as an example. Right? They, put, they put somebody like a community manager or social media manager or an agency in charge of the relationships that that brand has with their customers. And then you have, you look at the engagement and a lot of times it's, it's, it's an editorial calendar, it's you know, a contest here, it's a picture here, it's a, uh, some type of Q&A there. Uh, and then there's there's a big announcement. There's news. There's some hangouts. You know, it's it's almost editorial programming, like for the sake of trying to be present and pr being relevant. But the conversation, I think, is more than that, right? If you have, for example, a, a customer that has a problem, you have the community manager, of the agency that now has to try to do something with that. There, there's a path. Like, what do we do? Do we get it to a call center? Do we have a social media contact within the organization who can help? And what you start to do is look at how social media can open doors between different departments in the company that don't talk to each other today. Now, sorry for these long answers, but this is how important it is. Then you have, on the other side, the same people saying, well, I'm getting really frustrated that my executives don't see the full potential for social media. They ask me about the ROI, they limit my budgets, they won't give me resources. And you talk to any executive, and this is actually why I ultimately became a, an, an analyst, you talk to any executive and they'll tell you, I don't use Facebook, <laughs> I don't use Twitter, I don't even know what Twitter is. These are guys that don't even read their own email. They have you know, executive admins to read emails to them. <laughs> to them, BlackBerry is the most innovative thing ever. And <laughs> Sorry if anybody in there is a BlackBerry user. <laughs> <laughs> and these are people that we expect to understand an entirely new medium for communications and ask businesses to change an entire philosophy around it. It's just never going to happen because there's this sense of education that doesn't exist. There's this sense of understanding that just you can't appreciate. And so when I tell social media managers to stop talking about social media, I'm absolutely honest. Never go into a meeting with an executive to say, look, I need more budget and resources for social media. Because the executive will always say, I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. This is foreign to me. That's like coming to me and say you need bigger budget for email. That's a channel. Tell me how any of this is going to help us achieve our business objectives or help us accelerate business priorities. Tell me how you're going to help us do that and how you're going to measure progress along the way and then you have my attention because I don't want to learn about channels and tools. I want to learn about solutions and how you're going to help us be more effective and more successful 
in business. And that's an art and science that I think social media managers need to pay attention to. You actually have to have business acumen so that you can translate all this foreign stuff that their kids and grandkids live by into a way that un helps them understand how they're going to be more successful in business. And so you asked about a company that I think that gets it. Well, the, the move to digital engagement is big. It's actually what my next two books are about. It's, it is the move from social to digital to this idea of, of creating integrated experience or experiential design. Um, and this is, this is the future. This is the biggest stuff that you can, you, can, you can think about. And this is really going to move people away where social is literally just going to become one of the fronts that you push out integrated experiences. And so one company that is doing this very well is Sephora. And that is not because I shop there all the time, but it is because I've spent a lot of time with their executives. And what they did is they stopped what they were doing and they took a few steps back and they said, look, they call their customer her. Our customer, well, she does this, she does this, she behaves this way, she uses these technologies. When she comes in, she has these predispositions, she has these types of questions, she has these types of technologies with her. These are the types of technologies she used to get here. This is how she researches. And they realized that all of these different channels, part of them were social. Some of them were mobile. And when you say mobile, you have different contextual experiences within a, a smartphone uh, versus a tablet. They're also into you know, scanning barcodes, they're at the kiosks, they're in the websites. All of these things were disparate. And if you look at how most businesses are, de are designed today, every single one of those things is in its own department. Somebody does mobile, somebody does the website, somebody does social media, and not one of those groups come together to strategize about how are we going to create an integrated experience around channel engagement. And so Sephora said, well, we're going to take all those departments and fold them up into one group, and this is going to be the digital experience group. And then you look at Starbucks. Starbucks just appointed a chief digital officer uh, to do the same thing, to sort of figure out how the future of Starbucks and technology are, are going to play a role in customer engagement and customer experiences. And so we're having these arguments about Facebook and Twitter and Google+, and how we're going to be able to put more money and resources into customer engagement. And the entire world is already moving into different channels. And we're fighting a tactical battle when, in fact, we need to have a much more integrated. The things that we, the people in this room right now, you and me, we have a bigger opportunity to actually change our, custom, uh, our businesses from the inside out because social media is just going to be one channel. I'll give you an example. I spent about an hour and a half on the phone yesterday with two different reporters who are uh, investigating the, this incredible undercurrent of teenage usage on Instagram. Why? Certainly teenagers use Instagram. Why do they use Instagram is a very interesting story. See, so social networking is already starting to move away from the traditional social networks that we, we, we use today. Kids use Instagram as their primary social network because they wanted to get off of Facebook. Parents didn't stop them because they underestimated what Instagram was. Most parents thought Instagram was a camera app. When they realized how their kids were using Instagram, it was that psychologically it's sort of like this digital mirror and a digital window, right? It's how they see themselves and it's how they see the world. And all of the pictures that they share are either of themselves or of their friends. You and I take pictures of food and landscapes and interesting things that we see. <laughs> 
and to them it's their primary social network. And when you have, and by the way, the momentum on teenage and, and, and preteen usage of Instagram as social networks is the, the acceleration is like a pure hockey stick. And you already see the future of engagement happening right before you. So that's why, you know, Ben, we just t talking about social media when in fact there are multiple channels of engagement that we need to start thinking about and the psychology behind that engagement and the context. Being here at Google, Google just published a, a multi-screen report that is so fascinating and it shows you the different states of mind someone's in when they use a, a phone versus a tablet versus a, a laptop versus a television. And how they factor those things into decision making. It's, it's fascinating. So that's the types of stuff that I think we need to think about uh, when we're putting together our social and our overall digital and mobile strategies. That's great. And kind of the other side of that is that while we tend to cite ourselves as you know, mobile, social, the consumer just sees one brand. The consumer doesn't see the silos that we work within. And that, that consumer evolution, kind of looking a little more, you've talked a lot in the last year about the rise of the connected consumer. Um, and, and the need for business to find new relevance, uh, or risk the concept of digital Darwinism. Could you talk a little more about that, that need to compete for relevance, um, and you know, what businesses need to do? You recently published 10 points, 10 pieces of advice businesses to seek to find, to fight for that new relevance. Why don't you touch a little on that? Yeah, well, the relevance is, uh, is so every now and then I, I dip into um, realms of philosophy and, and, and sociology and anthropology, and that's because, you know, there's a saying that technology changes and that humans don't, and, and for some, you know, for most um, cases, that's the, the truth, but within, the, within that are the nuances of how people just sort of change enough that entire ecosystems then have to change, and so by that, decision-making has changed, how people are influenced and how they influence others is changing the outlets, the people around them, how they network, how they communicate. You know, the, the, the closest that people really start to understand this is when you see things like the Dunbar number come up and how many friends can we really have and you know, that's, it's not the point. The point is, is that in order to be relevant, you have to be relevant. That, might, that sounds sort of commonsensical, but think about it this way. If you create an infographic as a way of connecting with your customers, if you have an editorial calendar on your social networks as a way of engaging with your customers, they are only seeing one side of you. Um, they're not seeing the multiple dimensions of how they need to be seen by you, right? There's customers who need to be, I guess, want to be part of a community in order to become sort of an advocate or a, a loyalist. You, you have customers that are angry with you, that need help and resolution. You have people that are in the, in, in the research phase trying to make a decision on what type of product to get. Um, you have people that just want to be reminded about how cool your brand is so that they can stick with you. And if you think about it, all of those things, right now you have a different department within your company that is in charge of running those things, and that is because most businesses are modeled around that old funnel. And so I, I talk to people all the time, so what do you do? Well, I'm focused on the top of the funnel, and I, my goal is to grow the top of the funnel by 300% in 2013. And then you have people that are at the bottom of the funnel that say, yeah, well, the natural progress of the funnel is that people become advocates. And you say, well, actually, no, no, they don't. The new behavior shows that before they can even love you, this, and this is, by the way, some really interesting research that's in the book that, that you saw. I thought this was so fascinating that the connected consumer is so different than your traditional consumer that even after they make a purchase, they go back and research everything all over again to sort of as this form of self-validation to make sure that they made the right decision. 
And at that part, they are the most vulnerable. They might return the product or they might be susceptible to sort of a competitive message or competitive opportunity. So this thing is so dynamic and so crazy and so fluid that in order to compete for relevance, you actually have to be present on every single one of those fronts every single day. It's not good enough to engage every now and then. You know, think about how your budgets are cycled, right? Every quarter, you get to do things with agencies, you come up with creative ideas, and people sort of think about how you use social networks, right? You'll, if it doesn't show up in your stream, chances are you're not really going to see it. And the more things show up in your stream, the chances are that you're going to see it. So you can't necessarily ever go away. You have to be present. You have to be, in order to be present, you actually have to have an infrastructure that supports that type of presence across multiple channels. And if you look at some of the interesting trends in technology right now, you have you know, social media content management or social SMMS, things like Buddy Media uh, or Wildfire. You have things like uh, Thunderhead that are creating sort of dynamic contextual um, web pages so that they know where you're coming from and you see a different web page. And you start to see a really lot of these, a lot of smart things coming up, but we're still sort of focused on marketing automation without really understanding the getting your hands dirty part of it, the manual elements of this, of what makes it so different. How do we get smart? I mean, even in terms of big data coming around, you have a lot of really amazing technologies that are taking all of this data and putting it into amazing reports that you then take and email to people that no one ever reads. And all of this has to change, including our own behavior. And that means that we have to become a champion of change, not a champion of technology. And in order to become a champion of change, you actually have to understand who your connected customer is, what they're looking for, where they're frustrated, and more importantly, the experiences that they have around your business in these digital channels today. And that means you have to walk uh, in their digital footsteps. And then the most interesting thing that happens when you do that is you actually get a lot of insight and perspective and you start to see everything that you're doing wrong and you're starting to see things that you can be doing differently or be doing at all. And that's when you start to have a really effective and compelling case with the, the people you work with because then they say, wow, I never even thought of that. There's some really interesting stats. There's one that shows that, and we, we did this at the Pivot Conference where we asked brand marketers and executives, you know, do you know who your connected customers are? And I think it was 79% of them, 80% of them said yes. And then the next question was, well, do you, have you studied or have you asked what it is that they expect or want within these channels? And, and it was like 20% said yes. And so the, the dichotomy or the, the gap between what people want and what people think they want is huge. And we can't go through business anymore that way. And I'll give you a funny example because it's in the book. I love that show, Undercover Boss. And I think a lot of people like that show because there's some sense of vindication every time we watch that show. It's like, yeah, that's what I've been saying all along because now the executive has to go through the walk in the shoes of their customer and then their employees. A lot of times they suck at the jobs that everybody else has to do. A couple of times people have been fired. No one knows who it is. And then the ending is always the same. A lot of tears, a lot of, a lot of hugs a lot of promises to change and why is that? It's because for the first time that executive was, who was so disconnected from the day-to-day -day operations of the company felt empathy 
because they could, because they had to. And so then they were able to get incredible perspective about what was necessary to move forward. And imagine doing that for your connected customer. They are so different than your traditional customer that the empathy that you gain from that has the same type of outcome. I mean, maybe not tears and big hugs, but definitely confidence and the type of information necessary to go in and win a debate about why you need to do this at all. Yeah, with, with a lot of the conversation there, we're focusing on the consumer side of this, and you, you mentioned Pivot um, and just now, and that kind of takes into a different side of, of the actual heart of the business itself. There's a lot of businesses that are doing social, far fewer that are being social. Um, the shift uh, from social brand to social business was a theme this year at Pivot. So I wonder if you could touch on that, what, you know, what the difference is between a social brand and a social business, why that shift is so critical, and, and really can we stay as a social brand? Well, a social brand is a business that essentially does Facebook, Google Plus, Twitter, YouTube, uh, have agencies around it to, to push great content and, and, and contests out there. Uh, but a social business is a way of business. Uh, most businesses, if you, if, you, if you drew that sort of chasm and you said, you know, where are we in the bell curve? You know, most of the time, businesses will tell you that in social media, <clears throat> they, they are further along the bell curve than they really are. And if you look at, say, how they view them and how the world views what they're doing, I mean, you're going to see another gap. The most interesting thing about the idea of a social business is that my colleague Charlene Lee likes to say that at some point, social media is going to be like air, right? It's just part of what it is that you do. But in that part of what you do, you change how you work. And the idea of a social business is it's inside your organization. It's within the pillars of the institution. It's in the hallways of your company. It's in the philosophy that people bring to engagement. It's, it's the idea of a, of, a, of a group that exists within the company that's dedicated to bringing people who don't talk to one another together to solve for incredible problems that are, they're facing. And this is the idea of digital Darwinism. You know, that if you're not relevant, you risk, you risk ex extinction, not just because of, of technology, but because people don't know how to find you anymore, or they don't know how to be cool with you, right? Think about, sorry, Google, that I keep bringing up Facebook, but it just <laughs> that they have a billion people using them. It, the, the thing about... <laughs> The thing about that billion people is that Facebook has a lot of momentum, yes, but think about Instagram for a moment. That's the real reason or the real theory why, why a lot of us think that they bought Instagram is because it's already representative of the, a new way of how people are connecting. And so if Facebook didn't pay that much money for that network, they were already at great risk of irrelevance. Because if, if you look at the dynamics of, say, something like Instagram, it's already different. And you go back to Facebook <clears throat> and you feel like you've gone back in time. So this idea of perpetual relevance is a philosophy. It's a matter of almost like user experience. That's why you, you see me talk a lot about UX. It's because you're perpetually designing for the needs and expectations of an evolving customer. And that needs to now be part. Innovation now needs to be part of your organization. And so the social business 
takes all of these things, how is it affecting customer service? How is it affecting human resources, right? Because connected customers are also connected employees, right? The way that they go through work, the way that their brain even works throughout the day is really different than the people that I probably had to report to growing up. And there's already a gap within the organization. You have boomers, you have Generation X, you have millennials, and then Generation Z behind them, and every one of those generations work differently. The fundamental shift between Gen X and, and boomers and millennials is that millennials grew up this way. They're already used to connecting and having different types of conversations. So the social business understands that there has to be transformation from the inside out in order to sort of be everything to everyone but also be able to bring people together in order so that they're trained, they're empowered, everybody's around a common vision so that they can go and be integrated, create a holistic experience, create an experience at all to their connected customers across all of these channels. It's a whole different thing. And so you and I, you know, we have a, a sort of this career path to think about here moving forward. We're at the intersection of social brand and social business where, by the way, social business, the path goes down to this whole idea of a digital business or an integrated business. It becomes kind of like what we were talking about with Sephora. So we have to say, do we want to be the person running all of these channels within the organization, or do we want to be the person who fights for transformation within the organization? Both are great paths. There's no one right or wrong answer. And some of us have to make the hard call to go down the path to bring the right people together, to bring about the right type of change, like the undercover boss moment within the company, because if we don't, who is going to do that? And that's, that's the hard part, and that's what the future of this is all about. I mean, we're not going to see that in 2013. We've started to see it in, you know, over the years. We're still going to see a lot more social brand stuff. I'm going to see a lot of talk about social business, but what that is is you know, people who think that hey, we have marketing and we have customer service on social media, so therefore we're a social business. In the next couple of years, we're actually going to see that shift in business philosophy where leadership is going to recognize that in order to compete for the future, they're going to have to better understand who their new customer and their new employee is. But they're not going to talk about it in the sense of connected customers or social customers. They're going to talk about it the way that they've always looked at the world, in the nice and neat slices. So mostly demographics. And this is going to be a conversation driven by millennials. Yeah, you kind of touched on their career paths, and you're talking about a lot of different shifts of evolution, uh, the shift from social to digital. You know, we're sitting in a room with a lot of social media professionals, community managers, social media managers. What should we be doing as professionals to evolve our careers to make sure we're staying relevant to this transformation? And where would you see the biggest you know, professional career opportunities in, in the coming year? <laughs> that, that's a, a million-dollar question, isn't it? The, well, look, I mean, that's why I say it's, it's important to stop talking about social media. I mean, I don't mean that literally. I just mean to your executives. But I would say that there's something there that, you know, this is the social media club after all. And, you know, even Chris Hewer and Christy and I will have conversations about what the future of all of this is. And it really is about just media, but more importantly, what we're really talking about is just the social element of this, this, this philosophy, right? In order to be social, you have to come back to very basic human skills. You have to understand what's important to the other person so that in any relationship there's value that leaves on both sides and that there's the type of yearning 
that brings people back over and over and over again. And I think we take that for granted. And what I think we need to do moving forward is to better understand what that value looks like because what you're going to find is that there's, it's, it's like it's multidimensional. There's people who are going to value different things about, about you. I mean, look at Red Bull. I think they just set the bar so ridiculously high. You know, now you have to send, send someone to the moon in order to sell more drinks. And that, to me, is, is both scary and fascinating at the same time. But that's marketing, right? There are a lot of people who don't like the taste of Red Bull, and you can't send enough people to the moon to change their mind. So it takes a way of looking at the markets to find how do you invest in new product strategies that are going to be able to help you grow your market share and not just grow your brand. Granted, you have to grow your brand, of course, but it's a bigger discussion than marketing. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's about trying to do the right thing. It's, a, it's trying to build the types of relationships that you feel are going to be valuable to the organization that you can monetize and that you can measure and that you can do all kinds of things, but there has to be some sort of basis of value there. And I, th I see this as a big opportunity with, um, well, with big data. Uh, big data, I think, is fascinating because it gives you all of the, all of the insights to this type of behavior, these types of preferences, these types of, um, <clears throat> types of needs and wants. But it also takes what I call, I, I just wrote about this recently, called the human algorithm. It takes somebody like you to understand the frustrations that you have with the executives you work with, with the people that you work with that don't get it. And it helps you find the type of insights that you can convert into the, into the types of nuggets or reports um, or trends that show people that you're really on the wrong path. Right? And there's certain things that will help you say, look, here's where we are today. And it's hard to make the argument, especially when your company's profitable today. But you can show that that profitability is coming from a certain type of consumer and that this is how they make decisions. And your other type of customer, well, this is how they make decisions. And right now, all our money is going over here. And if our customers go in here, and big data shows us that our customers are going here, then if you look at the, a dollar bill, your dollar bills are going here. Their dollar bills are going here. What side of the dollar do you want to be on? And that's where data, that's where I think you and I as, as professionals looking for to be more relevant in businesses, we need to sort of not just chase the dollar, but be able to demonstrate that that's where it's going. And if you can't interpret data that way, then find someone who does. And it's not going to be someone in your business intelligence department or your social analytics department. It's actually going to be someone, and the, the idea of the human algorithm is someone who can take data and understand the challenges within the organization and make the case of that data to show direction and to show uh, evidence that this is necessary. So I, that's, that's why I got into research uh, many years ago, because my job eventually got boring and frustrating when I would do all of these amazing, amazing initiatives for, for brands, and then I would talk to an executive who <coughs> could care less about how amazing it was. Show me the ROI. And then you start having conversations about ROI, and you start to find out that there are psychological issues there that, are, that they're trying to deal with. You know, they, they need to perform well because they're a leader of an organization. They're measured differently. Uh, they talk differently. So I realized that we have to translate all of this stuff in the, things, in the way that they see the world and the way that they speak, because we still have a little bit of time before these older executives start to turn over. It's our job to bridge that gap.
And as I said earlier, we can't do that from a technology standpoint, but we can do it from an empathetic standpoint that demonstrates where this is going. So that's why I believe that there's a little bit of the human algorithm in each and every one of us, and it's going to take that in order to get people on, on, on the bandwagon, so to speak. Okay. I'm going to um, ask another question. I'm going to kind of skip forward and where I wanted to go because we're running out of time. I know, but one, one thing that you wrote about yesterday that Scott mentioned earlier that's been a big discussion for a lot of us recently, and um, obviously Mark Cuban had a lot to say on the subject, is the changes to Facebook Airframe. Um, Mark and many others had taken the opinion that this was something Facebook did to um, you know, reduce the number of people seeing page posts so that they would earn more advertising revenue. You had a different take on that, a response to that, talk about a like not being an opt-in for spam. Now, I wonder if you could kind of give your response to the whole Airframe field. Well, yeah, well, we're, I assume that everybody's sort of familiar with this this case. Um, the The idea is that Mark Cuban is a very smart man. Obviously, uh, I think his reaction was more emotional than logical at the time, and that was because he interpreted the changes to EdgeRank and the introduction of the new page post promotion initiative as being synonymous. So, for example. Facebook said, if you want to reach, you know, two million of your fans, pay one thousand dollars for this this post, and so he took that to mean that if he didn't do that, he wouldn't reach his two million fans, and so he did this huge rant. The guy is incredibly influential, so that sparked a massive debate. I think almost every media outlet jumped on board, plus the blogosphere and the Twitterverse, and everybody talked about this. <clears throat> the idea is is that the real the real debate is whether or not a network like Facebook, or any network for that matter, needs something like EdgeRank, right? So EdgeRank looks at three things, like post, you know, the, the relationship you have with the people who are posting, how you usually interact with that person, and how often that person has been sort of flagged for spam or, uh, or what have you. And those three things in varying ways sort of determines what you'll see uh, in, in, your, in your feed. Now, most of the time, when we publish something, most of our friends don't see what it is we publish because we're busy doing a million things and that's just the way the world works. The idea of EdgeRank though is that if it was relevant to you because of the relationship, you might see it in your feed a few minutes later because it's sticking there because it might have been relevant to a few of your other friends. So there is, there is some logic to, to the argument for EdgeRank. There is, though, the bigger discussion of whether or not you should pay in order to reach a bigger audience. And I, th I think wholeheartedly, yes. I also think wholeheartedly that you should experiment with both paid and non-paid. Uh, but what Facebook is telling Mark Cuban is if you want to reach two million people, pay $1,000 and we are going to purposefully keep your post at the top of people's feeds so that they can see it and interact and engage. And the more they interact and engage, the more everybody else will. And it'll, it'll hopefully keep it alive. I call this, um, there's a formula around it that I've talked about for years uh, around resonance, uh, relevance, and significance. It's this thing that I talk about called the RRS. Resonance is, I think, a metric that not, a, not enough of us pay attention to. And at the heart of this edge rank debate is resonance. So if, you, if you're Oreo cookies and you post a funny picture of an Oreo cookie, you're probably going to get a lot of people saying, oh my god, that's hilarious. 
and a lot of likes and a lot of comments. And then you have to think about, okay, well, what was the meaning of that engagement? You know, what's the value of that engagement? It's fun that you're bringing people together, but are you going to pay $1,000 to do that? Probably not, because it's funny in of itself and has the type of design, social design within that post to have resonance, meaning people are going to interact with it. The more that people interact with it, the more that it keeps pushing it into other people's feeds. So you have to design, whether it's paid or unpaid, with this idea of resonance. Uh, I've, I've written about this in the, in the past where I think we need to start thinking less like content producers and more like social content producers. And there's a big, big difference, right? It's the difference between a video that you put out that gets 2 million views and a video that you put out that gets 100 views. And most of these are not designed with resonance in mind. And so even if you were to pay for something, it should have resonance built in. Uh, because in my experiments, I have found that I can pay and have the most boring update ever, and it won't go anywhere. It'll be a waste of money. But if there's, there's certain words, there's certain verbs, there's certain characteristics, there's certain times and days of these things that have a better chance or as, a, as an open window for, for resonance to work. The more resonance you introduce into your content, in your posts, the more engagement you get, the more relevance those types of engagement, the, those types of posts earn you as a, as a business. It keeps people coming back for more. It keeps you higher in the edge rank algorithm. And essentially, the, the last part of that is that it, it helps you earn significance, right? You get more likes, you get more comments, you get more followers, your brand has much more weight or stature within the community, <clears throat> you own a greater sense of social capital, and it's this constant formula. I, and, and, the, and the word I want to use is this like relentless. You have to relentlessly pursue resonance in everything you do because otherwise, what's the point? And so the, the argument with Cuban was, I think this, if you're not developing content that's worthy of engagement, it doesn't matter if you post it for free or if you pay for it. The idea is then think about, think about this as a social producer. What's it going to take to get more likes, more comments, more shares? Because that's by design. That's, that's almost borrowing from principles of UX. And I actually believe that everything we do moving forward needs to look at that. And I can tell you this, having been the witness to way too many um, infographic cycles uh, from brands, they think that the design itself is resonant when in fact there are mechanics of an infographic, for example, that have resonance built into it, certain ways that you put images, how many images, the words around the images, the numbers that you put around it. So the, there's an art and science of data visualization that make things more resonant than just the idea of the infographic itself. And so sometimes I have to fight when an infographic is so amazing in terms of the story it's trying to tell, right, because everything has to have a story, including data. I have to take the infographic and use something like Skitch and cut it up into a hundred different pieces in order to blog about it to help it make sense to people that follow me. And if I have to do that, there's something wrong with the infographic. And I have to do that all too often. So the idea is, using infographics as an example, is that resonance is something that requires design. And it's not, for example, I was in a meeting with one of the biggest brands in the world and they said, look, we're getting really frustrated of creating content after content. We're putting it in Facebook, Google, we're putting it in Twitter, YouTube, and the stuff just goes out there and falls flat. What's, what's the recipe? You know, how do we make that viral video? And I said, well, you know, first of all, there is no viral video until it goes viral. 
other before that, it's a video. <laughs> so, but there's there's this there's this element to it that actually gives you the the formula for something that could be viral. But then there's certain activation things that have to accompany these releases. Um, and then they said, well, who do you know that's really good at social by design? Meaning that not just developing social media content like a video because they have a studio or because an infographic because they have a graphics team, but truly social content that is retweetable, um, that is shareable, that is, that's worthy of engagement. And I actually had to sit back in my chair and think about that because it's a really different, it's a really different technique. It's a very different philosophy on approach. Uh, and those companies that get it, so for example, like Mechanism, and uh, they have offices in San Francisco, New York, or Jess 3, who I've worked with going way back to the day to the original conversation prism. These are guys that came up by trying to reach digital natives. So just their, their approach is way different. And let me give you a funny example about just how broken this is, right? So in journalism, I, I, I studied journalism and, and worked for newspapers and published a magazine back in my day. And you know, one thing that you're taught is to have, have a gripping headline and an amazing lead. And if you look, think about when you visit the Wall Street Journal or, or, or CNN or, or your, favorite, your favorite media outlet. And uh, you know, maybe it's TMZ.com. And you think about the headline. How many times have you tweeted that, that story only to be completely frustrated that the headline exceeded the character count on Twitter? And then you have to actually act as the editor and go in there and change the headline a little bit so you can shrink it down and still add some perspective to it and then tweet it out. Well, what if you wanted that to be retweetable? Well, then the headline can't be more than 120 characters, right? Because you have to be able to let re people retweet that headline. So if you're, if you're thinking about resonance, I mean, it comes down to some really amazing basics as well as some really sophisticated design elements. But it's that simple. We have to start thinking about ways to make it more social, make it easier to share, uh, dropping nuggets at the beginning of the story that are tweetable moments, as I call them, to say, wow, that, those first four words are so, so epic that I actually have to share that because it's going to make me look really smart. Um, <laughs> and it's, it's that, type of, that type of approach that you bring to this that I think is, is, is the future of all of this. And it's that approach that's missing from the debate about whether Facebook's edge rank is working for you or against you. <laughs> I know we're out of time, so I've got one more very quick question for you uh, to wrap things up. Ben Rossi's here talking to you from Google Fiber Space. We're in Kansas City, in the heart of the country, in a very unique opportunity. We've got this high-speed internet. Uh, we've got the city being fed free internet service from Google. Uh, we've got local city governments in Kansas City, Kansas City, Kansas City Missouri, who are really um, pushing, promoting, encouraging innovation, entrepreneurship, uh, creating a lot of great things. We have a unique opportunity as professionals, as individuals. What do you leave us with? You know, what should we be doing now? What What should we do that we don't miss this moment? That we exploit this whole, just kind of a closing, you know, thought of, of where we go from here as professionals. <clears throat> you know, it's it's probably not going to have the word innovation in in my response. Uh, in, one of the things that you know, I being here in Silicon Valley. Um, being part of the scene for so many years. The one thing that I, I see that's different around the world is that entrepreneurialism and, and, and the, spirit the spirit of entrepreneurialism 
is really high, and it's really amazing. And what Google and what you guys are doing, I think, is 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 really tremendous. And this is this is a wonderful opportunity to try something differently. Think about the business owners that you work with, or the executives that you work with, or just think about your own career for a moment, and and sit back and sort of wonder about what it was that made someone do what they do. Why someone started a company that they did. Why someone quit a job to become an entrepreneur. And see if you can find the fire in that answer. See if you could find the spark in their eye or the energy that's around them to see if, it, if it's contagious or if it inspires you. The reason I ask you to do that is because all too often now, it's, I don't see that as much as I used to. I see a lot of excitement and enthusiasm for people who are trying to develop the next, you know, the next big thing or trying to modernize uh, businesses to be, say, more relevant for the future. But a lot of times it's missing conviction and more, more often it's missing vision. And I don't mean a vision statement, I mean vision. You know, where are we trying to go and why do you want to come along with me? And I think that's a good, healthy exercise for every single one of us to do because this is that type of opportunity where you're blessed with amazing technology, amazing people around you, a never higher spirit of, of, of entrepreneurialism, even intrapreneurialism, right? People who act like entrepreneurs within an organization. And I think it's that vision and that, that, <clears throat> that energy that I think if you can channel that, you can inspire everybody around you, and you have a better foundation for what it is that you're going to pursue in the future. So that's kind of my uh, that's kind of my two cents on that. Well, Brian, thank you. I know, um, you know we've had a few questions from the audience, some of which I've been able to build in um, to the questions I'd ask you, and I think we kind of have to wrap things up now as to the time factor. But thank you so much for your time this morning. Again, we are uh, Thank you, everybody. <laughs> thank you, everybody. Happy New Year. <laughs>